very much. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 8 this morning as we continue working our way through several books at a time. This time we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, and if you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I don't know about you, but one of the interesting things about, um, to me, about genealogy and things like that is that you find out things about your family that are very interesting. Uh, as they say, you find out how many horse thieves there were and things like that in the history, how many preachers there were, and all kinds of things like that, both good and bad. Now, think about my own family. We haven't done much in terms of genealogy, but I can think about just the people that I know about in my family, and, and uh, yeah, I have some interesting people. And they probably look at me and say, yeah, we have some interesting people in our family in light of things we've done or uh, how things are played out in our lives and those kinds of things. And uh, in terms of human families, we're, we're usually pretty much aware of the fact that uh, that's the way families are. And I mean not just um, immediate families, but extended families. But sometimes we forget that the church is a family. The church is the family of God. And sometimes we're surprised when we look like a family. <laughs> when we look like a family that has all kinds of different people with all kinds of different strengths and weaknesses, uh, all kinds of different pasts, and uh, all kinds of different things that uh, they struggle with or that they uh, are involved in. And yet, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is one of the best books you can read to get a feel for what is really true about every church. Um, every church has believers in it that are in different places, different stages of maturity, uh, different sin issues, different pasts that are affecting their present, all kinds of things. And some churches it's just more apparent than others. Uh, it's it's kind of like some churches wear their, their uh, sins on their sleeves, whereas other churches have it more... Uh, tight and to the vest. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, churches in the South, Southern Baptist churches, looked really good on the outside, but there was a lot of stuff going on underneath uh, things. And my mom was a church secretary, and she found out things about the church that she never wanted to find out. Once she got into that role, she realized, wow, there's a lot of stuff going on here that I never would have known just sitting in the pew. And yet, uh, that can be discouraging in one sense, but it's reality because none of us are yet perfect. There's going to be sin, there's going to be failure, there's going to be issues of how do we love our families, whether it's our physical family or our spiritual family. How do we love people? And how do we not just love them in the way that we think we ought to love them, but how, how do we love them like God loves them? which is the real important thing. And so that's going to be the focus of 1 Corinthians 8 this morning, is the reality of people being in different places in the body of Christ and the need to love them in light of that. And so let me read for us uh, 1 Corinthians 8. And if you have a Bible one way or the other, please follow along. In verse 1 it says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, 
we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Father, we do ask for grace to see and understand what your word says, to trust you in the ways we need to, and to grow in our love for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what I'd like to do is just kind of walk us through this passage and then make some application at the end. Uh, this is a obviously a, an interesting passage if you understand a little bit of the background. So I want to give you a little bit of that background. The very first thing Paul says in verse 1 is, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, uh, which lets us know that he's answering another question. The first question had to do with marriage and sexuality in chapter 7. Now he's answering a question about eating meat sacrificed to idols. Can we do that? Can we do it in an idol's temple? Can we do it in an unbeliever's home? Can we do it in our home? It's those kinds of questions must have been behind what uh, he talked about. And so the question is, why was that such a big deal? Well, the reality is in Roman and Greek culture, uh, the worship of gods permeated society. It wasn't like it was just one thing that some people did. It was what everyone did. In fact, they very much believed in all kinds of gods. They believed in all kinds of evil spirits. And so in order to manage life, they had to deal with the gods that they believed in, and they had to deal with the evil spirits that they believed in as well. And so you've got this situation where, um, whether it was on an um, official worship level, where there would be sacrifices to gods, or whether it was on just a... Uh, having people over level, oftentimes it involves some kind of sacrifice. And one of the reasons for that is they believed that evil spirits would connect themselves to food. And if you ate the food without dealing with the evil spirits, then you would actually bring evil into your life somehow. And so the sacrifice was meant to purify the food, interestingly enough that they would purify the food through the sacrifice. Now, obviously, in the idol temple, they would sacrifice the, the animal. Part of it would be you know, consumed for uh, the worship of the god. 
Part of it would be given to the priests to eat. Part of it would be given to the worshipers to eat, just like in the Old Testament with Israel. And then the priests many times would not eat everything that was given to them. And so they would sell what was left over in the meat market. So you've got two basic issues here. Uh, Can we go to the idol's temple and eat that meat? Or can we buy it in the market and bring it home and eat it? Can we go over to a friend's house who's not a believer? And we can know that they probably picked up some idol meat, meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, and they're serving it to us. And can we eat that without being defiled? And so on the one hand, the pagans thought the sacrifice to the the idols purified the meat. Um, Others thought it defiled the meat. And so this was not a small issue. This was an issue of, um, can I even be a part of society? Can I, can I buy what's offered in the meat market or not? And so it was a very, very complex question in various ways. And the uh, second part of the verse in verse 1 says, we know that we all have knowledge. And Paul is probably quoting Um, some of the Corinthians at that point, who were saying, you know, we all have knowledge, meaning we all know what the true reality is. And he goes on to explain that when he talks about there really are no other gods except one. There's only one God. We all have knowledge, so therefore it doesn't really matter what people think about this meat or what's been done to it. We're just free to eat it. And so you've got some Christians who were probably in the camp of what you might call a Gnostic. Gnostic has to do with the word for knowledge. And they said, you know, we know what the truth is, so we can just live however we think is right in light of knowledge. And there are others, though, especially those who have been converted to Christianity out of uh, Judaism, that would have said, there's no way you ought to be eating meat sacrificed to an idol, regardless of the context. So you probably had two extremes, the Christian Jews maybe and the Christian Gnostics and other people in the middle trying to figure out what do we do in relating to people, what do we do in relating to uh, this whole issue of eating meat. Again, the, the, the strong believers who knew the truth that there was only one God uh, probably argue that, you know, the best meat in the market is this idol meat. We don't just leave aside the best meat. And secondly, if we don't go to people's homes who are unbelievers, and if we don't get together with politicians who are unbelievers and those kinds of things, then how can we be a witness for Christ? We're supposed to do what Jesus did, right? Eat with sinners. So how are we going to do that if we don't participate in these meals? And you know, there's really nothing going on here anyway because these gods aren't true gods. Then you've got others who would be called weak by the strong people uh, who would say, well, you know, um, this feels like just returning to the old life. This feels like going back to my non-Christian days. This uh, feels like that I'm eating at the table of demons and then going to the table of the Lord. This feels like you're saying, I don't really have to... um, change anything or sacrifice anything. There's no cost to being a Christian. So you've got these different uh, factions in the church that Paul is dealing with. And Paul 
doesn't deny the truth of what the, the knowledgeable people would say. He didn't say, uh, no, there are many gods. He says, you're right. There is only one God. But he says at the end of verse 1, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Which is another way of saying that if knowledge is the only issue, you need to understand that knowledge is kind of a two-edged sword. It can puff you up. It can make you proud. And it can actually lead you into a kind of lifestyle that is not edifying. It isn't truly love. And so he's beginning to highlight the fact that the goal is not know the truth and then do whatever you think is the implication of that. The goal of knowledge is to love people. That's why we are to learn and to grow. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. In a way, he's saying, you know, if you really think you've come to master the truth about this situation, uh, you really haven't. Anytime you think you've really know everything there is to know about this, then you haven't really come to know what you need to know. He says, if you think you really know something, then um, you haven't come to know it in the way that you should. If it doesn't lead to humility, if it doesn't lead to love, uh, you haven't known it as well as you should know it. And so he's beginning just to call into question their exaltation of knowledge, which was big in Corinth. You know, it's all about knowing. It's all about what you know. If you know stuff, then uh, just live in light of what you know. Then he goes on in verse 3, and interestingly enough, he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, what kind of knowing is he talking about? It's the same word that's used in Matthew 1 when it says, but Joseph kept her a virgin. Joseph did not know her. It's a term of intimacy. It's a term of relationship. It's a term of covenant. It's a term of of, um, favor. And so it also says in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So how could Jesus never know someone? It doesn't mean he didn't know of them. He created them. It means I have never been in that kind of relationship that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 8. I've never been in a covenant relationship with you. I've never known you intimately You've been an enemy of mine, and you have not been willing to come to me for mercy. And he says, uh, those who practice lawlessness, which means those who have no regard for God and living to please him. And that's why it's so important to realize that what does it mean when we say love for God? Well, the way I defined it uh, during our prayer time, when it says uh, in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. The idea of being pleased with God above all things and living to please God above all things. Uh, the, the second one flows out of the first one. The reason why that I'm willing to obey God is because God is the one I'm looking to, to satisfy my soul, to meet my needs, uh, to be everything that he's promised to be. Why would I obey, obey someone that I do not believe loves me? Why would I obey someone that, uh, unless it was just servile fear, 
why would I gladly obey someone as we're called to if I don't see them as good as see them as being the, the prize above all other prizes? Now, that doesn't mean we love God perfectly. It doesn't mean that we love God as we should. In fact, I'm constantly asking God to forgive me for not loving him as I should. But it doesn't mean that I'm not convinced that he is the one I ought to love supremely. And that I, it doesn't mean I don't desire to love him supremely. And that I'm praying that he would enable me to love him more. And the same for you. And so um, Paul is highlighting the fact that um, knowledge is meant to lead us to love. Love for God and love for others. And the when we love, it's evidence that we are known by God in that special relationship. Where he goes on from there, and he says in verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. He literally says an idol is nothing, and nothing is God except one. And so he's affirming what the knowledgeable people in the church said. He's saying, you're right. Uh, idols are nothing, uh, nothing is God except God. Um, but he goes on to say in verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, the so-called gods would be uh, gods like Thor or Hercules or Aphrodite or Mercury or the other uh, gods in the pantheon, uh, Roman or Greek, uh, so-called mythological gods. Uh, he says, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. What is he talking about there? He's probably talking about the fact that there are um, powerful beings, little gods with little g's, not the ultimate god, but there are angels and there are demons. There, there are supernatural beings beyond what we can see. And he'll get into that more when he talks about the Lord's Supper and the table of demons and the cup of demons and those kinds of things. Um, but he says in verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. God the Father is the source. God the Son is the mediator. But then he says in verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge. The word men is not in the Greek. He says, however, not all have this knowledge. And what does he mean by that? He's talking about people in the church there in Corinth. Not all of you understand that. Now, what does he mean? Does he think that there are some Christians that don't understand that there's one God who is Father and Son? Now, what he's saying is not everyone understands the implications of that in terms of this practical issue. Yes, they can affirm, yes, there's one God, but does that mean that there's no real concern, there's no spiritual activity going on here in this idol worship that I ought to avoid in every way, shape, and form? And so he's talking about the fact that not everyone sees clearly what that means and how it applies in this situation. He says in verse... Um, Seven, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. I mean, everybody in that church came out of that society. And so they were all uh, involved in that before they came to Christ in one way, shape, or another. And some were having a real hard time with 
the fact that they still felt like it was wrong to have anything to do with meat sacrifice to idols. And he says their conscience being weak is defiled. The idea of weakness there is the idea of lacking the strength that is needed or that should be there. And we'll explain what that means in a moment. Um, he says, but food will not, this is verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat. The idea of command is to present. Uh, through our eating, we will not either make ourselves acceptable to God, nor will we bring ourselves into greater favor with God. And he's basically arguing that eating is um, its not a moral issue, which is important in our day and time because sometimes people make eating a moral issue. If you don't eat a certain way, they will condemn you for sinning. And the reality is that's, that's going further than what Scripture goes. And so um, we're always, there's always a challenge, and that's really at the heart of what's going on here. But he says in verse 9, but take care that this liberty of yours do not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block, there the word for that means something that is put in your way and you will trip over it and fall. And so he says, do not allow your life to be something that trips up someone else and causes them to fall into sin and maybe even fall away from the faith. Now, the weak, again, here is really talking about, uh, here he says the weak in conscience, which means someone who believes something is wrong that isn't wrong. That's what he's talking about. In Romans 14, Paul talks about the weak of those who are weak in faith in the same kind of discussion. There, the implication is someone who believes something is true that isn't true. And so... You can be weak in faith, and you can be weak in conscience. And usually those go together one way or the other. We can believe things are true that aren't true. We can believe things are wrong that aren't wrong. And as a result, depending on how people act around us, we can actually be led to sin against our conscience. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, be careful of your liberty or exercising your rights to live according to the truth, as you know it, that it doesn't trip people up and cause them to sin by violating their own conscience. It doesn't lead them into sin. And he illustrates that in verse 10 when he says, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So he says, what if you're reclining? That's what it means to dine. They would recline on their elbow and they would eat and a Christian is walking by and he sees you in the temple eating meat sacrificed to an idol and you're okay with it because you know there's no real idols anyway and uh, you feel okay with that and but there's a believer that walks by and he sees it as a sin and he sees you in there and either he walks in and decides to eat with you because you're in there and violates his own conscience. Or what if you say, hey, brother so-and-so, how you doing? Come on in and, enjoy, and join me. And he thinks about it real hard and then he says, okay. And then he goes in and eats. And he says, 
what do you think is going on there if he strengthened through your example or your words to eat something that he believes is actually wrong to eat? He says in verse 11, For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. The word for ruin there is the same word in John 3.16, for perish. If we believe in Jesus, we will not perish. So ruin there is a very serious idea. It's the same word in Matthew 2 when it talks about Herod wanting to destroy the child, destroy baby Jesus. Uh, Same word in Matthew 8 when the disciples uh, think they're about to drown and they wake up Jesus who's asleep. And they say, Lord, we are perishing. Um, It's the same word in Matthew 10, where it says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy or ruin both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10 says, He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. That could be, lose could be translated ruin, in either of those situations. So the basic idea is to lose life to one degree or another. And so Paul is saying it's no small matter to lead someone into sin, to lead them to violate their conscience. And at best, he's saying, you're leading them onto the road to ruin, especially in this situation where you're basically encouraging them Uh, to go back into eating meat sacrificed to idols in the temple. So it's kind of like, you know, leading someone back into um, the house of worship uh, for a Muslim after they've come out of Christianity. We're just going to lead you back in there uh, as if there wouldn't be any negative consequences or influence there. You could actually be leading them back into the very lifestyle that they've come out of. And so he says in verse 12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You wound their conscience, you beat it up uh, when you lead them uh, to sin against their conscience because Christ came to die that we might be delivered from sin, not led back into it. And then finally he says in verse 13, therefore if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. This time the word for stumble uh, is a different word. It's the word for trap. I will not, in a sense, set a trap for my brother so that he falls into sin and possibly even falls away to one degree or another. And so Paul is encouraging the believers in Corinth to think about the fact that not everybody is in the same place in terms of knowledge and maturity and convictions and what they believe is right and wrong and so be careful of your influence on one another with the heart of it is all of us should be praying lead us not into temptation help me lord to live to please you and help me to encourage others to live to please you as well so let me just make some um, applications here uh, before we're done The, the first thing is to say love is not the freedom to do whatever I want. Now, these things are going to be things that are very familiar, but hopefully you'll see it in this context. We always have to ask ourselves, what is the goal of our life? 
it's helpful to ask that question in every situation. What is my goal in this circumstance? What is my what is this goal? What is my goal in this job? What is this or my goal in this relationship? Whatever. And the question is, is my goal love? Or is it just freedom? Quote, freedom, just being able to do what I want to do. There are a lot of people who that is their goal in life. They just want to be free to do what they want to do. And some people work really hard to retire early. Why? So they can do what they want to do. There's just all kinds of ways in which our culture seeks to get to a place, even if it's just on the weekends, where I can just do what I want to do. And that was what was affecting the church there. There were those in the church who um, thought that based on the knowledge that they had, that they could just live the way they wanted to without really thinking it through. And there, um, you could call this a form of antinomianism, which means anti-lawism. And there are two kinds of ways that shows up. Sometimes there are people who will... Um, who will do like a friend of mine in high school. I had a friend in high school who was a Christian, and yet uh, at one point I found out that at one point in his Christian life, he would pray before he was involved with his girlfriend in an inappropriate way. With the idea that I'm free, I'm forgiven, and I'm free to do whatever I feel like doing. That's one kind of uh, lawlessness that we have to be careful of. Another kind is, if the Bible doesn't forbid this, then I can do it. That's what they were doing here. They were basically saying in Corinth, you know, the Bible doesn't say, I can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so in every situation, Regardless of the situation, regardless of how it affects other people, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And that's wrong, too. There's truth in the fact that we are free in many areas. God has not legislated everything. But that doesn't mean that our freedom is never to be limited for the sake of others. And that's why Paul could say in Galatians 5, 13, and 14, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Um, Let's say someone um, becomes a Christian and they come to see that the Bible doesn't forbid drinking. Forbids drunkenness, but doesn't forbid drinking. And they begin simply saying, you know, I'm going to drink whenever I want to, wherever I want to, in the presence of whoever I want to. And I don't care if there are other Christians that um, might be led into sin by it. They might actually join me and violate their conscience. That's the exact thing Paul is talking about here is the exercise of freedom in a way that is totally insensitive to leading people into sin because we're exercising, quote, exercising our freedom. I I know that it's okay to do this. And we have to be careful of that so that love is not the freedom to do whatever I want. It's the freedom to love. That's, That's what we're called to. Secondly, love is the goal of knowledge. Um, 
can ask ourselves, why do I want to learn? Whatever it is I might want to learn, why do I want to learn that? Well, biblically speaking, we're, we're to want to learn that we might serve others better, love others better. It's not just so that I can look better in the eyes of others or so that I can achieve only what I want to achieve in life. It's really one way or the other, whether it's learning in church or learning outside of church, it should be for the sake of love. And so when we do this five-finger thing, God is the supreme good, man is an auto-worshipper, Jesus is the double cure, says something about knowing God, knowing ourselves, knowing Jesus. Why is it important to really know the truth about God and the truth about ourselves and the truth about Jesus so that the other two fingers can come into play? Faith is trust in the promises. Love is the obedience of faith. The knowledge that I have about God and myself and men and Jesus is meant to move me to trust God in light of what he's promised and it's meant to move me to love people in light of what the word of God says. If just knowing stuff doesn't move me toward trust and love, then it just moves me toward pride. I get puffed up, get proud. Um, It's kind of like harsh Calvinism. Um, That's an oxymoron. Because as Calvinists, we believe that all of us should be incredibly humble. Because none of us are saved because anything good that we've done, in fact, we've We were dead in our sins, and God raised us from the spiritually dead. And we ought to be the most humble people on the planet. And yet, for whatever reason, um, the Reformed and Calvinists have often had a reputation of being more harsh and more unevangelistic and all those kinds of things, which says to some degree, like Paul said in in, um, 1 Corinthians 8, We have not come to know as we need to come to know. We might know this truth up here, but it hasn't transformed us in such a way that we are more humble and more loving. And we need to pray against that. We need to be aware of that. Because we can be proud that I know things that other Christians don't know. I can't believe they don't know all all these mysterious things. I just can't believe that. Um, The question is, Does my knowledge move me to be more humble and more loving or not? And that was the problem here in Corinth, and it's a problem in our day as well. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing." Then he goes on to talk about the fact that the greatest thing is love. It's all about growing in our love for God and our love for others. Well, the third thing is love is concerned about the good of others. That's what love does. It desires and pursues the good of others. But the question is, how do we feel when someone is thwarting our agenda or hindering our freedom? When we were, when our kids were much younger, I recall times, and I, I know this happened in my own heart, uh, we would want to watch a movie, but then we'd think, you know, I'm not so sure that this person in the family would be okay with that. And so we'd have to limit what we did for the sake of that person, and there were times when 
I and others didn't really respond that well, at least in our hearts anyway, complaining, and, oh, I wish they were older and further along, and oh, I can't believe we can't do this. I know that I'm the only one that's ever felt that way. But hindering, hindering, no, the weaker person, they're not really ready for that. Are we really willing to uh, give up what we have the freedom to do for their sake? We have to ask ourselves, what are we doing here? Um, it's interesting that um, a disregard of the weak is very much um, our natural sinful condition. If you look at the history of the world, the strong have taken advantage of the weak. Nietzsche, um, who was not a believer, he was an atheist, um, wrote a book called The Antichrist, Attempt at a Critique of Christianity. And this is what he said about uh, weakness. He said, what is good? Everything that heightens the feeling of power in man, the will to power, power itself. What is bad? Everything that is born of weakness. And then he says, the weak and the failures shall perish. And he says, that's the first principle of our love of man. He says, if we really want to love people, we get rid of the weak and the failures. We want to love mankind, is what he meant. If we want to build the Superman, it's a Nazi kind of idea. If we want to build the Uberman, we get rid of the weak people. He says, what is more harmful than any vice? Active pity for all the failures and all the weak. Colon, Christianity. He's basically talking about the fact that Christianity is the religion of the weak. And he condemns it as being hateful toward mankind. If you ever want to understand what people in power are doing at times, seemingly running roughshod over the weak, it's exactly what they're doing. They're believing those kinds of lies that the weak just need to perish. The weak are just um, collateral. There's collateral damage in our pursuit of the world that we want. And that's happening in our day in all kinds of ways. And it's not the Christian spirit, not the Christian attitude to just simply disregard the weak. Well, the fourth thing is love. Oh, let me just bring in one scripture. Romans 15 says, this is at the end of his same similar discussion in Romans 14. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. He goes on to say, because that's what Christ did. He bore our weakness. Well, the fourth point is love is ready to sacrifice for the good of others. So not only are we to be concerned and sensitive to the good of others spiritually, that's what we're talking about, we're to be ready to sacrifice for the good of others as well. Um, my grandpa, um, on my dad's side, he died before I was born, so I never knew him, but I knew of him through my dad. And my dad told me that his dad did not believe, did not believe in playing cards, going to movies, having a TV, and a lot of different things. And I can just imagine myself if I, you know, um, my older self, maybe in my 20s sitting down with my grandpa, if I had had the chance. And I could have easily tried to persuade him 
to play cards with me. Say, oh, Grandpa, that's, that's not true. The Bible doesn't say you can't play cards. Come on, let's play some cards. That might seem rather innocent on our side. Oh, I'm just trying to get someone to um, live in light of the truth, right? And that be what the Corinthians would say. I'm just trying to get these weak brothers to live in light of the truth. The problem would be, the problem wouldn't be trying to persuade them from the scriptures that um, what they believe is wrong isn't really wrong. That wouldn't be wrong. What would be wrong would be, would be to simply try to get them to act in the way we want them to act without them being convinced from the scriptures so that they violate their own conscience. It would be wrong for me to do that to my grandpa in that situation. One of the things that's interesting in our day and time is what they call influencers, right? Social media influencers. You've got Christians who fall into this category. And they define this as someone who uh, can influence the decisions of their followers because of their relationship with their audience and their knowledge and expertise in a particular area, whether it's fashion, travel, or technology. Influencers often have a large following of people who pay close attention to their views. Now think about that. Um, in any sit particular situation, any particular family, any particular church, um, there might be certain people that look to you in ways that they may not look to other people. And they might follow you in ways that they wouldn't follow someone else because you have a greater influence on them. And if you lead them in some sense to violate their conscience, that would be wrong. And so we can always ask ourselves, uh, what kind of influence do I really want to have on other people? Do I want to be the kind of person who is pursuing what is pleasing to God and who encourages others to do that too, even if it's different, in a different way, than I'm pursuing what is pleasing to God because of different convictions? In 1 John 3, it says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to be willing to... Uh, serve people, um, yield our rights in various situations, and to do that for the sake of love, for the spiritual good of others. And the last thing that I just want to mention is um, love is not simply trying not to offend others. You can listen to this chapter, and you can listen to what I've said, and you might walk away thinking, that means that I can't do anything that offends someone else. It's not what Paul is saying. Because when he talks about um, stumbling, being a stumbling block, in this context, he's talking about the issue of sin. Someone actually sinning against their own conscience. That's what he's talking about. He's not, he's not talking about someone who um, just doesn't like what we're doing. Um, they don't like uh, Christians who drink. They don't like Christians who play cards. They don't like Christians who do certain things. Or they believe they're sinning in those kinds of ways. Um, think about it this way. There are, there are three groups of people, and if you read Romans 14, it probably comes out a little stronger in terms of this. There's really three groups of people, potentially. One is the strong person who says, I know the truth. There are... There's no such thing as idols. And therefore, idols 
can have no impact on the meat. Then there are those who are called weak because they may know that that's what we're supposed to believe as Christians, but they're not convinced of it in such a way that they're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols without feeling guilty and believing that they've sinned because of their past life. And they're easily led to do something um, against their conscience because they respect more mature believers. But there's another group of people that, that are weak, like the weak, but they're just in the category of the offended. They're not weak in the sense that they can easily be led into sin, but they are weak in the sense that they believe that things are wrong that aren't really wrong. God hasn't said they're wrong, but they believe they're wrong. But you're not going to get them to do those things, but they want to get you to adopt their perspective. They want you to embrace their kind of lifestyle. Be kind of like um, someone saying, you shouldn't listen to contemporary Christian music. Years ago, that was being said. And it was being said by people who weren't weak Christians, not in the sense that Paul is talking about here. It was being said by Christians who would not have been tempted to do that apart from, um, you know, because of the example of someone else. They were saying that because that was their conviction and they were trying to impose it on the church. And so what was happening was it was what R.C. Sproul calls the tyranny of the weak, weaker brother, but I would say the tyranny of the offended brother. Someone who's offended by certain things that he believes are wrong but aren't really wrong, but he wants everyone else to um, follow that, what is properly called legalistic rule. Legalism isn't just trying to work for your salvation. Legalism is adding to the Bible, where it says, um, where God says, thou shalt not murder, you add to it, thou shalt not drink alcohol, ever. Thou shalt not watch movies. Thou shalt not play cards. Thou shalt not um, listen to contemporary Christian music with a 2-4 beat. Um, any of those things is adding to the word of God. And um, people can be offended by that, but they, they're not going to do it because they're firm in their conviction. And so should we simply um, follow what everybody thinks is wrong? No. We have to look at the word of God and determine what we believe is right and wrong. And we need to be careful of leading people into sin. Um, the reason, one of the reasons why I say that is um, in Matthew 15, the Lord Jesus tells a big group of people that um, we're not sinned by what, we, we're, not, we're not defiled, that's what he says, we're not defiled by what we eat. It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the man that defiles him. And after that incident, the disciples come to Jesus and, and they say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And it's interesting what Jesus says. He says, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So you hear what he says? He says, let them alone. 
let it go. Um, they were offended by something that they should not have been offended by. And they aren't being led into sin by what Jesus said. That wasn't, it wasn't 1 Corinthians 8. There was someone who was trying to impose on Jesus a standard or a truth or a right and wrong that wasn't God's. And so we live in a family in which we're all going to be in different places. Maturity-wise, even in terms of what we believe is right and wrong. And we have to be willing to yield our rights when we're actually influencing someone to violate their conscience and to do something that they really believe is wrong. We need to lay down our lives. We need to be aware of how we're influencing people in our body. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that if we disagree on things like drinking or playing cards or music or whatever, doesn't mean that we have to be careful of doing what Paul says in Romans 14 when he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. One way or the other, we are tempted to hold other people in contempt or to condemn other people. The strong believer says, I can't believe you're so weak that you think that's wrong. The weak believer condemns the strong believer for doing something that he believes is wrong. That is the temptation in the body of Christ, is to uh, fail to keep in mind that we are to love each other, and it's the Bible that tells us how to do that and what's right and wrong. So let's pray together. Father, we just uh, pray and ask that you'd help us to see how this applies to us. Um, obviously, all your word is profitable, and we pray that you'd help us to see how the issue of loving each other and yet not being, in any sense, um, legislating for each other is important to you. It's important that we not hold each other in contempt. It's important that we don't condemn each other. It's important that we yield our rights and our, um, our preferences even in certain situations for the sake of other spiritual good. It's important that we hold tightly to what your word says and, and be careful of just falling into a kind of legalism with regard to right and wrong. Father, there's just so much here, and I just pray that you would help us to truly desire to please you and to be us an influence in others' lives that they might also live to please you, whatever that might mean. We pray, Father, that you would just speak to us in light of your word, in light of where we are, and prepare us for the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.